It's Monday, April 11th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroides, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program and Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, there's a lot to talk about today, but I first want to ask about um, Lee's column uh, last week in California on your mind. Uh, Lee, you write about uh, you write something interesting about uh, a democratic legislative maneuver in Sacramento, uh, where in which a bill introduced by Assemblyman Kevin Kiley, uh, a Republican, um, that would have suspended the state's 51% uh, gas tax for six months ultimately resulted in a windfall profit tax for oil companies with his with Kylie's name on it. Uh, Lee, can you tell us what happened in the state capitol and what the Democrats' reasoning is for increasing taxes during this time of record fuel costs? Yeah, well, Jonathan, it's it's, a, it's sort of a play on words on a, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. So a funny thing happened on the way to the uh the uh, Legislative Assembly Committee vote. Um, so for several weeks, uh, Kylie, who's <clears throat> young assemblyman um, representing Rockland, a, a relatively lower income district, uh, and Kylie is is a is a woman who I who I think understands a lot of economics and has a number of good economic ideas. We all see gasoline prices uh, going up substantially in California, as in other parts of the country, but particularly in California. I mean, in in, in my neck of the woods, I'm seeing prices in the, in the $6, $6.29 range. Um, and when we think about California, there's, you know, the the the, the lowest one-third of, of earners in the state. Um, higher prices really, really cut into their quality of life. So Kylie had the idea of trying to reduce the cost of gasoline, the cost of energy. He wanted to do it in a way that would be relatively simple without a lot of overhead with, and something that could be done very, very quickly. So his idea was to simply eliminate for about six months the state's 51 cent tax on each gallon of gasoline. Um, and motorists really like this idea. I mean, what's not to like? The price of gas will go down. Exactly how much depends upon a bunch of details about supply and demand, but there's no sense, there's no doubt that prices would for consumers would fall and fall substantially. Um, now, Kylie could not, for the life of him, get his Democratic colleagues to listen to him about this. Um, and Bill has a great column from the week before about how Governor, New Governor Newsom has his own idea about how to reduce uh, or how to help out motorists who are having a difficult time with gas prices. And people in the Democrats in the Senate and the Assembly have their own ideas. So Kylie was getting nowhere with this. And then suddenly he tweeted one day, about a week, a week and a half ago or so, he tweeted, hey, my bill my bill AB 1638 is going to get a hearing. I wonder what's going on. Well, here's what went on with that hearing. Kylie presented the bill. And, uh, and then um, when uh, before, before really the paint was dry, 
Democratic Assemblyman Alex Lee, who's from San Jose, introduced a motion to amend the bill. Um, and Lee said, which is that uh, you can probably find it on YouTube, uh, the amendment begins, strike all current contents of the bill and replace it with a windfall profits tax whenever the price of gas relative to the price of crude oil is, abys- is abnormally high. So suddenly we had Kylie's tax cut turn into voila, an excess profits tax on, uh, on gasoline profits. And what is really, you know, adding insult to injury is that it's still the same assembly bill. Uh, Kevin Kiley is still the author of that bill. And um, he had a tax cut snatched away from him in a nanosecond and turned into a tax increase. Um, and Kylie tried to uh, Kylie tried to uh, to fight this on the assembly floor, saying, "Hey, you, this is my bill. I'm not going to let you hijack this and turn it into something completely different." Well, of, as we all know, Republicans aren't making much of a headway these these days in Sacramento. So Kylie was chided and chastised for violating parliamentary procedure. And when all was said and done along a strictly party line vote, eight to four, Kylie's Assembly Bill 1138, a tax cut that would have actually worked, I think, really very, very well for most Californians, suddenly became a tax increase. Um, And of course, a tax increase is going to um, actually raise the price of gasoline. And um, what was really, as an economist, what was so absurd about this is that there's absolutely no detail or definition for talking about when is the price of gasoline relative to the price of crude oil abnormally high. Um, in the piece I wrote, I looked at uh, I looked at Chevron net profit margins. Well, Chevron net profit margins are at ten percent for as long as you can remember, except for the pandemic when they actually had very very large losses. What's the current profit margin for Chevron? Ten percent. So this again is just is silly politics. It is damaging Californians, particularly the low earners, and um, and Californians really, really, really deserve something better than these kind of silly political games. Yeah, Lee, I think uh, I think what uh, Assemblyman Kylie ran up against was three things. Number one, just first of all, pure power politics. Uh, he is in a decided minority. He can't cobble together enough votes between his own caucus and pulling over wayward Democrats to get a bill passed. So he is stuck. Uh, that's uh, issue number one with him. Secondly, he's up against a mindset, Lee. And let me let me read a quote from Lee, which I just think kind of sums up the whole nuttiness of this. Uh, Lee gets into a debate about the bill, and he says, and I quote, there is no guarantee that suspending the gas tax nets any savings to the consumer. Let me repeat that quote for you. There was no guarantee that suspending the gas tax nets any savings to the consumer. I just did some quick math off the top of my head. Let's say somebody drives about 12,000 miles a year, which is kind of the average, and you break that down by about uh, 50 weeks of driving. Uh, That means you uh, and your car gets about 25 miles to the gallon. That means that you are putting about 10 gallons in your tank each week. 50 cents a gallon means what? You're saving five bucks a week times four weeks a year is 20 bucks times uh, six months. We were talking about here, it's $120. This is not going to send anybody to college. It's not going to get you to finance a second home or anything like that. At least $120 does two things. Number one, it's a little pocket money. You can maybe take the kids to the movies or a ball game or something like that. 
but at least shows that you care. Um, but I think the other thing that stands out here is just the mentality in Sacramento lead. It's very similar to the mentality in Washington. The congressional Democrats that when in doubt, you just go after big oil and things oil related, that they're the problem here. And so what do you do? You put together a tax. It's a vehicle. I think they call it technically a, a vehicle fuel windfall profits tax is a fancy term for it. And you get in this incredibly arcane, um, amb- amb- ambiguous thing, Lee, of what is abnormally high for a price. So it's it's just bad government all around. But, you know, just the, the pretzel logic involved in a, a an elected member telling somebody that, you know, knocking 50 cents off the price of gasoline is not going to benefit you economically is just, <laughs> I don't get it. Well, Bill, yeah, absolutely right. Um, uh, Representative Lee really, um, I mean, I wish he would take an economics course because he sent out a tweet where he talked about how fossil fuel corporations dictate their own prices. And you really only need to take one semester of basic economics to understand just the absolute blatant fallacy in that statement. Not even monopolists dictate their own prices, even if the oil the oil industry is far, far, far from a monopoly in California. But even if it was, a monopolist takes into account <clears throat> consumer demand and market conditions, no one dictates their own prices. And Bill, it, it's even worse than you imagine, because I think Lee was imagining that the price of retail gasoline would not fall at all, that fossil fuel corporations, and in his own words, would gobble up with a 51 cent increase in the price of gasoline at the pump and that drivers would realize absolutely no drop in the price of gasoline at the retail pump. And that is just the nuttiest thing I have ever heard. He, um, um, I, 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 I wish he would take some economics courses because his, um, what he did to that bill is just some of the, some of the worst economics I've ever seen from elected officials. It is absolutely abysmal. It is. It's very interesting. So San Jose is kind of interesting neck of the woods, Lee. Um, uh, Assembly Lee is from them. He is a his, uh, footnote, by the way, he is the youngest uh, Asian American legislator ever elected uh, to the state legislature. He's also the first openly bisexual state legislature le- legislator in California history. But that neck of the woods is both him and Ro Khanna Lee, who is, of course, the uh, decidedly socialist, kind of the West Coast Bernie Sanders, if you will. So I'm not sure it's in the water there, but this is a young man. You're right. I think he needs to go back to school. But, you know, the question is going to be, Lee, what if anything the legislature and the governor are going to do to help California? So that's what I wrote about the week before that. Um, the legislature wants to hand out $200 checks to taxpayers and their dependents. The governor uh, wants to give $400 uh, for uh, each of your registered cars, max of two. And they're going to have a sit down uh, bet- sometime between now and um, July 1st, the budget uh, deadline, and figure out what to do. Um, I just think it's going to be really fun to watch Lee and Jonathan because it's going to get into democratic means testing. And so you're probably going to get an argument over how many cars, how much the cars are worth, uh, income for the person in question, if they should get a rebate or not, they might start looking at zip codes and so forth. And I can, I'm going to be selfish here, but I can safely tell you sitting here in the 94304 zip code, (laughs) not far from the Stanford campus, uh, I really, I can just feel my $400 just fleeting away. (laughs) 
yeah, Bill, you might as well just open your wall and, and put it out the window. Um, and, you know, is the legislative analyst office going to look at the cost of implement if this if this gains traction? Are they going to look at the cost of implementing this? Because the nice, you know, what I thought, in addition to the simplicity and the immediacy of Kylie's idea of simply turning off the state gas, ta gas tax for six months, it wouldn't require any additional administrative expenses. But I can no, imagine no. Um, that. You, you you don't, Whatever you don't, comes you, out of the powwows is, is, is going to is probably going to cost us millions. You don't need an LAO, you don't really don't need an LAO reportly because as I understand it, the Kali bill was simply to take money from the surplus and have that make up the lost lost revenue from the from the lack of the uh, the gasoline tax. So zero sum maneuvers. So uh, no, it's not about you know cutting back any services or anything. It's just about how to spend the surplus, which is going to be the narrative, by the way, as they haggle over their budget, just this 35, 40, 45, whatever the final figure is when they do the May revise here in a few weeks, just however much money they have to play with. And that's part of the offense that, uh, that Assembly and uh, Kylie committed here. He wanted to chew up a good chunk of that on something that did not mute Democratic approval. So, you know, welcome to power. Yeah, it, it, exactly right. And um and so maybe, so Bill, what you're saying is maybe, maybe by July or August, yeah, motorists yeah. might get my, or, or September, yeah. who knows? But you know, Jonathan, it seems the legislature has a lot of clever ideas these days when it comes to what to do with the economy. Yeah, there's, there's a few of them. Um, there is a uh, ballot initiative that would tax income above 2 million for the goal of cleaner air. Um, sorry, sorry, Lee. There's uh, another initiative that would tax income above five million for the creation of the California Institute for Pandemic Prevention. Uh -huh. There's yet another legislation that would impose a 25% tax on housing gains if a home is flipped within three years of purchase. And finally, there's a bill that would eliminate the cultivation tax uh, for marijuana. Um, gentlemen, who who exactly you think um, benefits from these taxes if if they pass? Well, I have, to, I have to go back, Lee. We have to go back and dig up now when Harry and Megan bought their home in Montecito to see if they would uh, escape the three-year flipping rule or not. But uh, I think they'd be close right on the edge. But uh, I think the answer, Jonathan, is it benefits the legislature because it spells one thing, more revenue. Yeah, the last couple of weeks has been among the worst of economic ideas I have seen You know, <laughs> since we've been talking about this stuff, Bill. The idea of taxing people um, for selling a home in a particular period of time, and that's just that's economic nonsense. The idea of taxing some of the most successful, productive, innovative people in the state to create a new office for pandemic studies. Again, one of the silliest things I've ever heard of. There's absolutely no reason why California government should be investing in pandemic studies. This is a national issue. This isn't a state level issue. Uh, and, uh, and then just to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, we're going to start cut, we're, we'll, 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 we'll cut taxes on, on marijuana cultivation. Um, you know, I don't know what happened to the legislature in the last month or so, but um, what I'm seeing is just absolute inanity. Well, it is the season to put ideas out there, and there's a difference between putting an idea out there and having it actually get any traction. You know, you, Lee, you and I have talked for years about uh, about global wealth taxes in California, and there was about a two-year stretch where the idea would get uh, brought up. This is the idea, Lee and Jonathan, that uh, you would just tax Californians on everything they had worth uh, north of about 30 
million, including money you didn't have in California, and you'd have to pay uh, a tax on it. And if you left the state of California, you'd still have to pay a portion of that tax for 10 years until it completely divorced from California. Um, that idea came up. It went to committee. It died a rather undignified death. And that's what happens for a lot of these ideas. But uh, I think it's a combination of just a lot of pen and energy, Lee, um, just a desire to get more money to spend, and just also the nature of the beast in Sacramento, and that it's a lot of guys up there, a lot of men and women, I should say, who don't know about, about economics. I mean, imagine John, you know, imagine uh, John Maynard Keynes, you bring brought back from the dead. <laughs> he is teaching a class in California. He's teaching a bunch of rather economic literates. And for one day, he has, bring your best idea to class. And that's kind of what this is like watching the the, the <laughs> Best ideas of economic illiterates at, at play here. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, uh, yeah, economic illiterates probably shouldn't talk much about economics. And again, what what just puzzles me is why there's never really any depth to create a thought process to say, you know what, we got some real issues here. Why don't we sit down and try to think about what we can do to make it easier for businesses, easier for middle income household families, try to stem the tide of businesses they're leaving, try to stem the tide of households they're leaving. We don't really want California to lose another, another. Uh, but instead what we get is just a lot of half-baked and harebrained ideas that come out about, hey, let's tax this, let's tax that, let's tax this over here without any thought whatsoever about who will pay for it, how much revenue will be generated, will it be efficient or effective, who is going to leave because of the consequence of imposing this yep. tax? Um, and it, um, you know, it, it gets my blood pressure up. I may have to leave temporarily to go <laughs> to go take some medication here. Um, but, um, you know, there, there's uh, and what's even I think more calling is that um, the state's sitting on what is a bill of 21, 21 billion dollar surplus. And yet 40, 40, all we, 45, <laughs> 25 billion surplus. Yeah. Um, and all, all we're getting from uh, Sacramento is new ideas for ta- ideas for new taxes. Yeah. So there's an old joke in professional sports that when you go to an NBA game, you show up in the fourth quarter for an NBA game because that's when the game really starts. And uh, I think Sacramento is kind of the same way. Don't really pay attention to this stuff until it gets toward a floor vote. Uh, remember a few weeks ago, we were doing a podcast talking about single payer care. And we thought, holy smokes, this is a year. California's actually going to have the nerve to do single payer care. That sucker was yanked up the floor fast. So this is an election year. I'll be surprised how many of these tax increases actually make it through the legislative process. The more interesting question is going to be if the ones um, that have been talked about in the ballot, these are mostly in circulation right now. They have not qualified, much less been placed. If they do qualify and if the uh, backers of those initiatives decide to run them uh, this year, wait for a presidential year or not, because we've talked about this before, uh, the initiative process is not as predictable as it used to be for ideas, You know, be it raising taxes by playing with Prop 13 or fiddling with with affirmative action in California. So uh, I'd be very curious to see how many tax ideas are actually kicked around on the ballot this year. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed there won't be many. Right. Uh, another um, piece of legislation that is being considered is AB 2932, which is a recent bill that would change the work week, standard work week from 40 hours to 32 hours for companies with more than 500 employees. Uh, this essentially creates a four-day work week. Proponents of the bill would say it would promote uh, productivity. Critics call it a job killer. Um, under, the, under the bill, employees who work in excess of 32 hours would be comp- compensated at a rate of at least 1.5 times their regular rate, rate of pay as currently required. Um, although there, there will be less economic costs, such as transportation, childcare, um, and cost to the environment, 
Um, given the decrease of regular work hours, employers will probably have to pay more in overtime. Um, Lee, um, what do you think are the implications of this bill should it pass? Yeah, so Jonathan, um, again, a really, really bad idea among a sea of bad economic ideas coming out of Sacramento. Um, you know, I don't even really know where to begin with just how bad this idea is. Let's take the idea of a negotiated transaction between workers and who hires them. They're people who work for five hours a week, 10 hours a week, 20 hours a week, 40 hours a week. If there was, if it was such a remarkably great idea that we limit work to 32 hours a week, four days a week, you know, the millions of people who work in the state and the millions of businesses that hire them probably would have come across that idea on their own. They don't need people in Sacramento to say, hey, we've got a win-win for you. We're going to have you hire people only for 32 hours a week. But if you hire them for more than that, you've got to go to overtime. So what this really is, is, is just a thinly veiled attempt to try to mechanically force employers to pay their workers more. Because for a lot of businesses, trying to ramp down from 40 hours a week to 32 hours a week is going to be incredibly costly for them. And hiring additional workers, uh, because now they're not going to, you know, most business could not survive paying a 50% premium for a worker on 25% of their hours, because that's what we're looking at. Okay, so right. that amounts to, if my math is right, about a 12.5% increase in employee costs uh, if they were to keep a 40-hour work week and pay their workers the fifth day a 50% premium pseudo-overtime. Um, they couldn't afford that. They wouldn't be able to stay in business. Um, so what are they going to have to do? They're either going to move, which a lot of businesses are doing. A lot of businesses are leaving California. So again, this is another half-baked idea. Um, another command and control idea coming from Sacramento with no regard for what's good for workers, what's good for businesses, what's going to be effective, what's going to be efficient. Um, for businesses that stay, they're going to, you know, they're going to have to hire a lot more human resources people and go out and hire more workers to try to balance out, hey, you know, and if I had 10 people working 40 hours a week for me, now I'm going to need something like 12 people working or 13 people working 32 hours a week. Suddenly I have to work, I have to hire three more people a week. And by the way, what about those people who want to work 40 hours a week? and don't want to be told, I can only work 32 hours a week. Um, this is just absolutely awful economics. It's awful in terms of personal freedom and the ability to create your own way and the, the ability of businesses to run, the, to run their, their operations the way they want and, and hire people for a period of time that has become standard for, for decades. Um, this is um, just another completely silly idea. And when I looked at those who signed the, who, who were sponsoring the bill, uh, none other than Assemblywoman Garcia from Bell Gardens is one of the sponsors. And she is also um, the originator of a bill that would take all of California's public golf courses, plow them over, 
and build new housing on those. So again, I mean, I just, you know, all we can do is hope this one doesn't see the light of day, but it is absolutely abysmal. So I first saw the story, Lee and Jonathan, and I had a flashback to when I worked in Sacramento uh, back in the prehistoric days, back in the 1990s, which to young kids is prehistory. And uh, we kind of knocked a hornet's nest off a tree by fiddling around with uh, overtime rules. State of California has a very simple rule, and that is that if you work eight hours a day, you get paid a wage. And if you work overtime, you get time and a half, as Lee mentioned. Uh, My boss, Governor Pete Wilson, uh, changed that rule. You could do it by executive order, and he changed it so that daily over uh, daily overtime was no more overtime was driven by total amount of work for the week uh, 40 hours since that's when overtime kicked in you cannot begin to imagine the fury that that unleashed among labor uh, particularly our appointees at what was called the Department of Industrial Relations which handles labor laws in California we had uh, members who received death threats for doing this but the idea was kind of an attractive one which is what they're getting at here Lee and Jonathan uh, in this age of free stuff nothing better than to go to voters and say hey I'm getting you a free day off from work Ooh, you know, bring it on. But it creates problems. It creates problems, obviously, in terms of uh, payrolls. Um, it's it's, But it's attractive to voters, obviously, in terms of the day off, uh, not having to commute one less day. You save money on child care. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why this is a sexy sell. But here's kind of the question, uh, Lee. I want to get your thoughts on this. We, you know, I'm up here in Northern California. You're down in Southern California, UCLA today. And uh, Apple is in the news today. This is day one of go back to work um, uh, at Apple. Uh, so now Apple employees have to go back to work for one day, and then they'll build up to two, and they'll build up to three. It's like watching somebody go through rehab after an accident, and they are not happy about going back in the workplace. There's a lot of push and pull on this. The question is this, Lee, kind of what is the relationship between government and the private sector when it comes to dictating the work week? I mean, we have overtime rules, but the state mandating that thou shalt work only four days a week, not five, is kind of new territory, I think. Yeah, it is new territory, and you know, there's... Um... In my opinion, government is really crossing the line between what would be sensible oversight of the private sector economy regarding safety issues and so forth into really mandating how the the terms of employment contracts. Um, You know, back in the day, there were that, you know, there were good reasons for, for regulations by government back in the 1900s when a lot of jobs weren't safe. But trying to force a certain, a certain number of hours across a certain number of days just makes no economic sense. Um, and, it, you know, ironically, we're seeing more work flexibility uh, in the United States today than we ever have any time in the past. Um, there's a lot mm-hmm. more job sharing. Um, because of the pandemic, um, and, and in spite of Silicon Valley workers going back and not and not being so happy about that, um, I think most of them probably aren't going to be going back for five days a week, are they? No, they're not. Uh, and so this is kind of the irony of the of of this push to do four days a week. But again, it only applies to companies over five hundred. So. Uh, that Tesla factory uh, not far from here in Fremont that gets hit by it, some larger operations in California, but smaller companies, uh, smaller payrolls, they don't have to face that. But then that's the other question, Lee. Uh, will the legislature start to water this down and start trickling it down to 400 and 300 and so forth? Because more people will want in, obviously, when they see other people doing four days a week. I just, again, I just wrestle with the idea of the government dictating the terms of employment other than obviously, you know, overtime and, and you know, workplace safety. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, As I alluded to earlier, if 
if if if this was a win-win, businesses and their workers would have figured out would have figured this out first, just like they figured out so many other things between right. the terms of uh, of of those who work and those who hire, and um, and you know I think. It, it was an interesting statistic. Um, you know, we often compare California to Texas in terms of legislative differences. Um, almost all who have served on the Texas state legislature have some private sector business experience. Mm-hmm. Um, almost none uh, of our Democratic legislators have any private sector experience. And if they did, they would understand that recruiting and hiring and retaining good workers is important and expensive and you will do a lot to try to get the right workforce and you're going to treat them well um but you know in sacramento there's a legislators look at employers as oh that those are the bad guys that's the those are the enemies those are the robber barons of the 1800s those are the people who create dangerous jobs and people are being exploited. You know, this is 2022 in California in a remarkably competitive labor market where unemployment rates fall, where because of demographic changes, we're going to have worker shortages. (laughs) Nowhere, no time ever have workers been so much in the driver's seat. And now we have legislators saying, Hey, you know what? We're going to tell you how to run your business. And uh, I can imagine there's some people that say, yeah, I got it. I would just love to have a 30. Uh, I would just love to have a four day work week. And, uh, and either my employer won't do that willingly or I'm afraid to ask for that. Um, the losses from this will be enormous. And those are losses that will be spread and mm-hmm. spread between workers and businesses. Um, yeah, you know, it also points Lee to California being the economic outlier in a couple of regards. Besides fiddling with this um, unemployment, the Biden administration will brag about 3.6% unemployment. That's not the case in California. Lee, I think I heard a stat the other day where California is responsible for something like 40% of the nation's ongoing unemployment. And we're what, 20% oh, yeah. of the population. So we're on in that. But uh, for the work week, I have a solution here. And I think we need to means test it or just water test it. And that's to look at one company called Plump Jack. That is Gavin Newsom's company. Gavin Newsom likes to brag that he is an entrepreneur and a, an investor and a job creator. Uh, we should look at Plump Jack and see how many people work at Plump Jack, to see how many days a week people work at Plump Jack, and to see if Plump Jack could operate if it went to this four-day system or not. Yeah, and um, and and the governor is uh, is in the wine business, an incredibly competitive business. Hundreds, probably thousands now of California wineries trying to get their product in front of consumers. The last thing they want is someone is government stepping in and saying, oh, and by the way, here's a here's a laundry list of things that we want you to do because we think that you should be doing them. So, uh, yeah, Bill, I would love to see Plump Jack be the poster child for all this. Bill, let's move to your uh, column uh, last week, Thursday, on California On Your Mind, uh, which focused on Walt Disney Company's protest of Florida's new law forbidding instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity to students um, from kindergarten to third grade, um, and how that might shape 2024 uh, presidential politics. Uh, DeSantis's move, the governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, uh, seems to further strengthen his national uh, profile among conservatives. He tweeted last week, or two weeks ago, the state of uh, Florida is governed according to the interests of people, not according to the political posturing of corporate executives in California. 
We will never allow corporate influence to repeal the substantive rights of parents in our state. He's referring to uh, corporate executives in California. That's Disney executives in Burbank. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Governor Newsom posted a photo of himself on Twitter uh, reading Toni Morrison's Beloved with a stack of books next to him, including George Orwell's 1984 and Harper Lee's To Killing Mockingbird. Uh, The tweet was was meant as a criticism of some states. Presumably, he means the red states that removed these books from their curriculum. And he alluded to the banned books um, in the State of the State Address um, uh, earlier this year and argued that this is a larger uh, part, a larger attack on academic freedom uh, by conservatives. Conservatives, uh, the Florida, the recent Florida legislation included. Um, Bill, do you think these culture wars will frame the next election? If so, are DeSantis, Ron DeSantis and California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom playing a smart strategy that would raise the prospects of these two politicians being uh against each other in 2024. And even if Newsom and DeSantis aren't nominated by their respective parties, do they do their messages demonstrate that the Golden State and the Sunshine State are respective leaders in each side of this ideological war um, for the soul of America? Yeah, Leah, Jonathan, I think this is already underway. I think it has been underway for some time. If you go to the Virginia governor's race last November, uh, how did the Republican Glenn Young get uh, elected? Uh, he tapped into a lot of parental frustration over teaching during COVID, but he also tapped into critical race theory as well. And so that's kind of the beginning of the culture war. Ron DeSantis is a smart politician. And what he does is he takes the, uh, the word California and he makes it a pejorative. And that's what caught my attention here, how he quickly dragged California into the conversation that this is not just about a company based in California. It's about California. And I think that's a preview of attractions coming in 2024. The, now, the Newsom thing you mentioned, um, yeah, this is the governor uh, just very smugly looking at a uh, at a uh, at a Tony Morrison book. And uh, uh, I assume the governor does his own Twitter. I'm not sure he reads it because his Twitter feed was pretty savage after he did this. Uh, a lot of people pointing out, for example, that he is famously dyslexic. So how can he be reading that book, number one? Uh, and then a lot of people photoshopping the photo and putting a lot of crude things on the title book, which we can't say here on a family rated podcast, but, you know, look it up yourself or use your own imagination. It was not pretty, but um, I think this is the preview of coming attractions in America. That's going to be in one quarter, California and the other corner um, of Florida. And uh, you're seeing this certainly on COVID. Um, the man, there's a study out today, uh, just blasting California and New York over their handling of COVID and lockdowns, uh, praising Florida on the other hand for, for not going to a lockdown. Uh, you'll see this on education. You'll just see this on general social demeanor. Um, and this, what intrigues me here is both DeSantis obviously picking up and realize that California is a very convenient cudgel, but it's also Governor Newsom's just ongoing interest in just getting involved in things beyond the state lines. If it's not Disney in Florida, uh, it's these books, which really is all about Texas and Tennessee, how red states are won. I think it's what comes when you don't have political competition. He survived the recall. He uh, is a prohibitive favor to get reelected in 2022. Who knows where life takes him in 2020. 2024 and 2026 and 2028. Um, but uh, he's a guy just kind of bounding around for issues. So he noses into other states matters. But here, and perhaps I'm biased here, I think California just suffers on this issue. You can, you know, beat your chest and puff your chest and say, don't say gay all you want to. But, you know, first of all, the word gay is not to be found in that piece of Florida legislation. And secondly, I don't think I want to be on one side of the argument if the question is going to be, should children in kindergarten through third grade be involved in gender identification and sex education? I think I have an idea where parents are going to come down on this issue. So here's California virtually settling. And the other question, Lee, I'll throw this over to you. Um, Is this good corporate practices? 
Disney is famously the happiest place on earth. Disney is a place for children to go and frolic. Disney is a place for a lot of adult friends I know to go and drink in the daytime. It's just a place to go and escape. And you don't want to walk into Disney and be told that you can't say he or she. And just it's not a small world after all. It's a politically correct world after all. So, Lee, I think this is kind of like going to McDonald's and getting lectured about, you know, calories or something like that. Just what are they doing to Disney? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I wish I had thought of that line. Yeah, exactly right. It's like going to McDonald's and having the workers lecture you about calories or or say, hey, do you really want to supersize those fries? Or, you know, do you think you'd be better off with a Big Mac instead? Do you think you'd be better off with a quarter pounder instead of that Big Mac? Really? You want to, you you all want to get milkshakes today? Well, you know, um, what I find interesting, at least on the, um, on the side of Newsom is that, um, he really doesn't have anything to do now. Uh, he's waiting to be reelected uh, in November, which of course, almost, you know, let's just be frank, and he will be reelected. Um, the state's biggest issues are not going to be solved under, under his watch. Housing is the veritable huge ocean liner. And it's and if any progress is made whatsoever, um, it's going to be very, very slow progress. He's not going to have much to show for that. Um, remember, housing was his marshal. It was supposed to be the marshal plan. Housing starts are 85% below what he targeted. So that's not something he can point to. Um, the bullet train is a complete <laughs> disaster. That's not going to turn around anytime under his watch. So what he's doing is he's going across state lines. What, when did we elect uh, a governor to start poking their nose in the businesses of other states? We want him or her to be trying to make the state of California as good as it can be. But what surprises me or what doesn't surprise me, but what ironically is coming out from this is that we have a governor who's really going to be, who's kind of twiddling his thumbs and he's going to get reelected. He, he could take a four month vacation between now and November and he could still get reelected. And his second term, I suspect he'll be thinking about um, a Senate seat or perhaps presidential aspirations. So California, I think, is in his rearview mirror. Um, you've got a state such as Florida. And, Bill, I love what you said about I would hate to be taking a strong position advocating that five and six-year-old kids should be learning about the complexities and nuances um, and complications of what gender and sexuality mean in individuals who might be five, six, seven years away from puberty. Um, And ironically, um, people who are, quote, experts in this field have enormous disagreements about when these issues should be taught, uh, about the probability that a teenager who believes they may be gay or transgender or what have you, that some some scholars think the recidivism rate switching back to being straight is very very high. Others don't think that. Um, so this is really, I think, and and there's a lot of parents and families who think, you know what, irrespective of where I stand on this, I, my child's sexuality and my my family's sexuality and what we 
what we talk about behind closed doors, that's not, that's not part of what I want my children's teachers who know nothing about us and who really know nothing about sexuality should be dealing with. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's a really a sad statement on today's culture wars in society. I wish, I wish it would go away, but it's not. Yeah, here's how I look at it, Leah Jonathan. Um, the question is, where will the governor be traveling? This summer, and I don't mean family vacations or for going out for himself to raise money outside of California if he deems so. Will he be invited into other states to campaign for Democratic candidates? And let's look at the nature of those states. I would argue with you that um, he might get invited to Florida if Charlie Crist is running against Ron DeSantis. Uh, Charlie Crist will run a very progressive campaign, uh, tailor made for Newsom to jump in there and go after Ron DeSantis, who he clearly doesn't like. Uh, Newsom really misses a chance to beat up on Texas. So if uh, Beto O'Rourke, who I think, by the way, is um, going to make political history this year, I'm hard pressed to remember somebody who lost a Senate race two years later, failed as a presidential candidate, and then two years after that, lost a governor's race. That's kind of a very rare triple crown to pull off in the course of uh, uh, three straight cycles. But uh, Beto O'Rourke, of course, who wrote a very woke race in Texas. Maybe Newsom will want to parachute in there, a campaign for him. But imagine, guys, that um, Newsom wants to go to North Carolina or Pennsylvania or Ohio, Arizona even. These are very contentious states for Democrats right now where there's kind of a burden of proof not to show that you're a party of excess and just not out of control in Washington. And Gavin Newsom bragging about the California way is kind of the poster child for Democratic excess. So uh, if I'm running races in one of those states, if the governor called up and said, could I come in and help you? I'd try to say, well, governor, I'd love to love to you know get some financial connections in California. But you know, sir, we kind of got a good thing going here in the state. You know, you're busy. You don't need to come see us. <laughs> you know, and, and Bill, on the flip side of the coin, um, California Republicans could learn a lot from their brethren in Florida because highly Hispanic state, um, Hispanic voters tend not to be um, uh, not to be super progressive in the Democratic Party. Um, if I was advising the California Republicans, I would say, Hightail over to Florida, see what they're doing, because if you ever want to become relevant in this state again, then the Latino, Latina vote is one that you're going to have to cultivate. And it's one that you could cultivate because the the face of the Democratic Party right now in California is not one that represents California's Hispanic population very well. Yeah, final thought on DeSantis, we could move on, is he's also, uh, for a Floridian, not a Californian, he's very adept at surfing a wave. And the wave he is surfing is uh, changing voting demographics in Florida. You look at the population shift, and now Florida is a majority Republican state for the first time in state history. I think there are 100,000 more Republicans. The Democrats, uh, Trump won by a much wider margin there in 2020 than he did 2016. Uh, we get in this endless conversation about battleground states and presidential elections, and Florida is always on the list. Uh, I was talking to our colleague, Doug River, who's a pollster um, uh, for YouGov, and he's also Hoover Senior Fellow. Uh, Florida's getting close to not being a battleground state anymore just because it is tilting red, almost reliably red now. So DeSantis is playing into that. And so you see what he is doing politically in terms of jumping on uh, the sex ed issue, how he handled COVID, uh, even getting into squabbles with uh, Gavin Newsom. I think this is a very smart politician who understands what, what his state is interested in. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And just one last thought. If um, I mean, um, now the 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 name of the mayor in Miami is escaping me. Um, I don't know, Bill, if you recall his name, but um, he is a Democrat. He was elected with, I think, 85 percent of the vote in his last election. I had a chance to interview him for a Hoover event uh, a few months ago. 
Uh, and if you didn't tell me he was a Democrat, I would have never known it. Um, he is running. He is running Miami. As uh, does it make sense for businesses to be here? What can I do to make households and families as well off as they can be? Government should be shouldn't be getting in the way. We need to be efficient. Any business who wants to move there, he gives them their cell number. Um, taxes are much, much different. Regulations much, much different. And he said, I'm above all, I'm a public servant. It is not my job to impose my culture or my social beliefs or my personal beliefs on the voters. I work for them. They don't work for, work for me. Um, and that, that, that's something the California. Really and that's a, yeah. That'd be Francis Suarez. He's the mayor of Miami. Francis Suarez. Yeah. Terrific and- guy. He has had a little California squabble at all, but much different from DeSantis, who has gotten into a newsome over these you know woke social issues. Uh, Suarez kind of um, got swatted on the nose because he put a billboard up on the uh, 101. If you drove in from the airport into downtown San Francisco, you saw this big giant billboard uh, just reminding you that we have a very vibrant tech community in Miami, and it showed a beach and an umbrella and a drink and all. And the message was, "Come work here." And <laughs> not appreciated by California, but hey. Come Competition is competition. Competition is competition. Competition brings out the best. Those who don't want competition don't want to be the best that they can be. And sadly, I think that's what our state has become. Right. Gentlemen, let's talk about uh, the crime issue, which has gained national national attention as the gun control uh, debate has also reemerged. But something happened um, about a week and a half ago, just blocks away from the state capitol in Sacramento. Um, where a gunman killed six people uh, in, in, in a in a um, in sort of a, um, a shootout uh, uh, between uh, rival gang members, um, and um, it sort of underscores the issue of um, the, the the crime problem in the Golden State. Uh, one of the suspects uh, is a man named Smiley Martin, and, and he had just been released um, from prison in February, just four years into a ten-year sentence stemming from convictions on robbery and weapons charges. Uh, Sacramento's DA, Ann Schubert, uh, who is um, planning to run for attorney general of the state of California, um, opposed uh, Martin's parole on the grounds that he presented a significant danger to the community. Uh, Gentlemen, my question is, what are the policy and political implications of events like these? Are we going to see more support uh, swing towards Ann Schubert's and less uh, Chase Budin's? I I, I certainly think so. You know, what's interesting, Jonathan, um, uh, about Boudin's um, response to his recall, which is going to come up. Bill, what is that? Is that in June? So we're about what two? Same, same, same day as a primary. Yeah, same day as a primary. So we're less than two months away from Chase of Boudin's recall, and um, you know he is being hammered, um, and he is behind. And so what he has decided to do is what Gavin Newsom decided to do when he had to run for recall and he was facing uh, Larry Elder. He decided not to run on the issues, but he decided really just to run on the fact that those who don't like me are the enemy. Um, but when we look at, you know, when we look at the, um, the horrible, the horrible, um, you know, that hor- the, the horrible murders that took place in Sacramento, and we look at um the enormous rate of property crime in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Um, you know, Bill, a couple of months ago, I wrote, uh, I wrote a piece uh, that in terms of property crime, San Francisco is by far the most dangerous city in the country. Uh, and to put it in perspective, I compared San Francisco crime with crime in Compton, California. If you remember back in the 80s and 90s, Compton was the 
was the home of all the drug gang turf wars. Uh, it was one of the most dangerous places ever. It still is a cocaine distribution center and Compton is twice as safe according to crime statistics as San Francisco. Um, so when you look at how people are responding to uh, Chase Boudin and, uh, and Gascon in Los Angeles, um, you know, you can talk the progressive line all you want, but when your when your cars when your car is broken into and your computer's stolen, or your house has been defaced, or you no longer feel safe walking down the street, you feel you feel for your children. Um, you're going to walk away from that progressive line, and uh, Boudin and Gascon are I think are going to be either gone uh, gone very soon <laughs> or sometime soon. No, you're right. It's uh, so a lot of interesting angles about this shooting in Sacramento. First of all, uh, Democrats called a mass shooting. Uh, law enforcement calls it a gang shooting. Um, so I don't know if calling it a gang shooting has some sort of racial overtone that Democrats don't want to go after. Um, but in the um, aftermath, Daryl Steinberg, he's a former state lawmaker. He's now mayor of Sacramento. Uh, he immediately called for what? More money. He wants $3 billion. And he wants $3 billion for what he calls, quote, immediate and substantial investments in crime prevention and healing services for crime victims. Um, nowhere in this is the conversation that Smiley, as you mentioned him, he was doing 10 years in California prison, got let out after four. And this is what you know proponents of tougher crime laws will say. You let bad people out on the streets early and bad things happen. So here we have another argument. So once again, in California, we're bogged down in this conversation over tougher sentences laws versus tougher gun laws. And so it's, uh, it's a very frustrating game to watch, I think, if you're a citizen, because it seems to be rather predictable, like Groundhog Day. But again, I think it's just it kind of is a slow, slow uh, simmer, pardon me, uh, here in California of just frustration with crime laws that just don't seem to prevent. By the way, I worked in Sacramento, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and for the shooting to happen not too far from the Capitol, I have friends who work like in the building next door where this happened. It's shocking. These things don't happen in the K Street corridor in Sacramento, but there it is. Yeah. And, and Bill, you know, the um, crime is affecting everyone. I mean, back in the day when, you know, you could think that you could buy your way into a safe neighborhood. And that's that's still somewhat true. Uh, Pacific Palisades in Cal in, in, in you know, west west of Los Angeles, um, Bel Air, um, just north of where I work at UCLA, um, remain fairly safe. But again, you go to a city like San Francisco, you go to Presidio Heights, which I think is, I think is one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive, zip code in the country in terms of residential property. Uh, violent crime rates in Presidio Heights are about three times the U.S. average. So this is something that's hitting everybody in California now. Uh, it, 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 sadly, it's taken this. It's taken such a huge increase in crime rates to push to push voters to this point. But um, I think I think the um, I think the tide has turned on this one, and I don't think it's going to be coming back. Yeah, the mindset's interestingly. Um, if you watch old reruns of The Odd Couple from the 1970s, for example, Life in New York City, there's always a joke about someone getting mugged uh, or someone's car getting broken into or things like that. In other words, you were a New Yorker back then, you're used to crime. I did an event up at the Commonwealth Club a couple of weeks ago in San Francisco. They have a lovely building on the Embarcadero, not far from the ferry building. And in the invite, I, I got the invite and said, sure, I'll do it. And then I just said, what's the parking deal? Hoping they had a garage. And I said, alas, we don't have a garage. You can park around the street or you can park on the street up front. And they put in parentheses at your own risk. Uh, what that tells me is there's obviously a crime problem in San Francisco. There's a smash and grab problem. And San Francisco's have just kind of come to 
you know, live with it. But, you know, I guess the question, Lee and Jonathan, is going to be at what point is enough and enough? And, you know, Chase Budin is the beginning of this. But then if you see continued frustration with Proposition 47, and then if it really does kind of, you know, claim a scalp other than Mr. Budin, who's kind of low hanging fruit when just his his behavior and the city's condition as well. Gentlemen, I'd like to um, uh, conclude with a question um, about uh, baseball. Um, <laughs> MLB uh, uh, baseball season opened, uh, opening day for baseball was uh, last Thursday. Uh, the Do- Dodgers and the Giants appear to be contenders. Uh, the Dodgers are stacked. Uh, the Giants surprised a lot of people last year, um, but they still have some key vulnerabilities. Uh, the Padres are up and coming. Uh, the-, the Angels trot out Mike Trout and Shohei Otani to showcase their skills, but um, they're unlikely to be a top team. And the A's somehow scrap their way to contention every year. Uh, gentlemen, do you think we'll see a renewed uh, giant Dodger rivalry uh, this year? And I also have a follow-up question on the policy front. What do you think will become of the A's bid for a new waterfront stadium in Oakland? Um, or will they eventually follow the Raiders out of town? I well, Let me jump on here since I'm uh, since I'm the seed head. I obsess over baseball. Um yeah, I hope the Dodgers rival. So last year, I think the Giants won 107 games, the Dodgers 106, and uh, the Dodgers had a long streak of winning their division snapped. It was just a great back and forth rivalry that evoked this uh, magical time in baseball from the 1960s when the two teams had moved to California from New York. Um, I'm not sure if the magic can be continued, uh, certainly on the Giants side, because they did have this kind of incredible run. The Dodgers seemed built for another 106 wins. I'm looking at the A's, plain, plain and simple. My mantra for 2020 to is pray for the A's because um, I selfishly would like to have another ball team in the Bay Area. Oakland's a very nice place to see a ball game on a on an afternoon in uh, summer in California. <clears throat> but here's the problem, Lee. They want to build a beautiful state-of-the-art ballpark on the waterfront in Oakland next to the Howard Terminal, and they need a lot of help. They need some friends in Sacramento to help them get around CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act. And the poor ace, the governor is a Giants fan. Um, there's no real legislative leadership based in Oakland anymore. Um, the ace seemed to kind of be out of luck. And I'm just afraid that in, within the next decade, we're going to be watching Oakland A's games being played in Las Vegas because I'm just not sure that they're going to be able to get around the environmental regulations, much less find the money to build their fancy ballpark. Yeah, Bill, a um, <clears throat> bunch of great points. The um, Well, the Dodgers... The Dodgers Giants last year was really a dream come true in terms of baseball. Um, I don't see how that I don't see how that could be topped, or even if we could get close to that again. I hope we do. It was exciting. Um, from an economic point of view, um, I don't I don't see the A's staying in Oakland. Um, I think they'll have more lucrative opportunities elsewhere, and Las Vegas is the obvious place for it. Um, Demographics are difficult for baseball. It's, 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 it's a demographic that's more biased towards uh, people, you know, Bill's age and, and, and my age, as opposed to younger folks. Um, so Vegas is um, really almost a perfect place for that. It makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of money will come will be thrown at Major League Baseball to move the A's. Uh, I hope they don't, but uh, as someone who went to, as someone who went to go see the Charlie Finley A's back in the 70s as a kid, uh, but I think dollars will prevail ultimately on that. 
Yeah, it's just this is the way things are done in California. It's sports. So if you go down to Los Angeles right now, there's these incredible state-of-the-art football stadium, SoFi Stadium, where they played the Super Bowl. Across the street from that is the fabulous Forum, which is now, I guess, a music venue, Lee, uh, but house the Lakers. If you watch the uh, the winning time on uh, HBO right now, chronicling Jerry Buss, the Lakers, that's the Forum. And then the other direction from SoFi is a new arena going up for the Los Angeles Clippers. Now, here's why it's a California thing. Who's a, who owns the Clippers? Steve Ballmer. Estimated wealth about $95 billion, I think. He's going to build the arena. Not a problem, but still, Mr. Ballmer turned to Sacramento and had friends in Sacramento who helped get them through CEQA, as did SoFi Stadium. You need help to get through CEQA to build a stadium in any kind of time. And again, here's where the A's just appear to be out of luck. I don't think they have the political friends right now to make that happen. No, no. It's... Um... It has to be fast tracked. If it's not, it's simply it's right, simply right. just not going to get done. Um, and <laughs> if anybody can get it done, Steve Ballmer can get it done. But um, yeah, the depth of those pockets is something relatively unique, and not something that's I don't think is 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 happening in Oakland. Yeah, and while a very happy baseball is underway, it's right now as we're doing this podcast. It's about fifty five degrees with about a thirty mile an hour wind outside. Not baseball weather. <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, uh, gentlemen, this has been very interesting, timely analysis. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word and get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroidis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.